Uh, we'll be in the Gospel of John, if you can see behind me. We'll be in chapter 6, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way. We'll be looking in verses 41 through 51 as we've been spending the last several weeks looking at Jesus' teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum uh, as the crowds that he fed uh, with the feeding of the 5,000 followed him there and found him, and he began teaching about the bread of life. Again, it's a statement he made uh, after the crowds, when they came, wanted Jesus to prove himself to them. They wanted more evidence than what they'd already uh, had seen. And so they turned their attention to a passage out of the book of Exodus uh, concerning the manna that God gave the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. And the problem was is they had a flawed interpretation of the passage. It was taken out of context and that they believed it was Moses who was the provider. And Jesus points out their error and reminds them that God was the ultimate provider. This morning we're going to be looking at a couple of verses and Jesus is going to further define what he meant when he said that he was the bread of life. It's a section of scripture that all God's people need to understand and why it is so important that we understand who Jesus is and why we share the gospel with people in our lives as we're called to be ambassadors for the kingdom. So we're going to draw out the meaning of what Jesus is saying here in these verses this morning as we're going to find out everyone's need for the bread of life. So hopefully you have your Bibles open and ready to go. We'll be in John chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray together before we get into this. Father, we have worshipped you because of your goodness, because of your love, because of your faithfulness. Because the promises we find in your word. We worship you because you are a great and mighty God who has saved us. You gave us your only son so we might have eternal life, so we might be forgiven for our sins, that so we might be called yours. You gave us your spirit so we might be given discernment and to understand and to draw deeper into your presence. Father, I pray in this moment that you just use me as an instrument of your righteousness, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, Father, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is softened and ready to accept your truth. I pray for those who may be here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, that your spirit would speak to their heart, that you would Bring them to a place of conviction and repentance, and today would be the day of their salvation. 
Above all else, Lord, we pray that you alone be glorified in this place, that your will and kingdom be the only thing that is done in the lives of the people here. We lift up the kids back in children's church and be with the teachers there. Speak through them, use them for your glory. Be with the kids and let them be able to hear about how much you love them and what you've done for them. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us where we failed you. And continue to give us the strength to endure and persevere after you. Again, thank you for allowing us to come into your presence once again into the throne room of grace. But Father, we want to hear from you. So speak to us the only way you can as our Heavenly Father who loves us. I pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so the reason we need a reminder of the manna statement, which we started out with, uh, comes from verse 31 earlier in the chapter. John is led by the Spirit when he writes this gospel to point out that the people in the crowds were just like the people in the Exodus account. They were grumblers. In Exodus, the Israelites grumbled to Moses because they were worried about food, they were worried about water, and here we find in John chapter 6, verse 41, the Jews continued to grumble, and this time it pointed at Jesus. The point of their grumbling is they don't believe what he's saying. So when John starts out, so the Jews grumbled about him, it's most likely referring to all the people who are in the synagogue on this day, maybe the majority of them at least, and those who were probably the religious leaders at this particular synagogue. Their grumbling in verse 41 is based upon Jesus' statement out of verse 38, where Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And with this statement, with this statement in Jesus' emphatic statement of he being the bread of life, he is stating to the crowds that the manna which Moses and the Israelites ate, and they were nourished and sustained in the wilderness, that that was actually a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. That was a foreshadowing of the man who stood before them in this synagogue, that God has now sent his son Jesus to be the bread of life, to nourish and sustain the people spiritually. Further issue the crowd is having is they believe to know who Jesus is. This is why they refer to him and his father Joseph and his mother. Capernaum is in the northern region of Galilee. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, which is in the southern region of Galilee. And the mention of Joseph here doesn't mean that Joseph is still alive at this moment, but the crowd simply knew who Jesus' earthly father was. Even though Jesus throughout this time is trying to point out that he is actually the son of the heavenly father. But we can fall in the same danger that this crowd is doing with Jesus on this day in the synagogue. And that we can have the danger of believing what we think we know. The crowd was stuck in a spot where they believed they had Jesus figured out. They were trapped because they already decided what they wanted Jesus to be for them and who they wanted him to be, what role they wanted him to play. So when he makes these massive statements about he being the true bread everyone needs, they weren't willing to hear it. They were like the disciple Nathaniel, and you can turn back a couple chapters in the Gospel of John. If you remember this calling of Nathaniel, Philip goes to him, and he tells him, we have found the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response is, could anything ever good come out of Nazareth? So he had a roadblock in his mind. He had a perception of what and what couldn't come out of Nazareth. But luckily, 
Philip responded to his, his uh, racism. <laughs> Why don't you come see for yourself? And Philip began to become a follower of Jesus Christ. This crowd had come to Capernaum after the feeding of the miraculous 5,000. It came looking for Jesus. But Jesus had already pointed out earlier in verse 36, the crowds came because they had seen his works, and yet they still did not believe him. Verse 42 of the verses we read this morning is the truth of Jesus' words coming to fruition. John has already revealed the crowds had an agenda for Jesus. And as Jesus teaches about being the bread of life, they're stuck because they can't get past what they think they know. They can't get past what they believe to be true. And so Jesus is telling the crowds he was sent by God to give them what they needed. And what they needed was not another full stomach. They needed eternal life. And people today can do the same thing. They can have these preconceived ideas about who Jesus is or what the church is or what the Bible is. You know, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet. He was a good man. He lived a good life. He was an historical figure. They've made a lot of good TV shows and movies about him. And all those things could be true. But the reason God sent Jesus from heaven was to be the Savior of the world. We can believe things about God and Jesus, but if we don't understand our need for him to be our Savior, then we're just like the crowds in the synagogue this day. People can do the same thing with the Bible. First, they can believe it's a book that's out of date. It's not really relevant to our times. They can believe the Bible has some interesting things in it, but not actually see it as the Word of God. They can believe it has a lot of fascinating stories, but never allowing the stories And the lessons those people learn to transform their own life, never drawing closer to God and becoming more like Christ, they can even misinterpret the Bible and make it say what they want it to say, to approve their sinful life or to approve whatever they feel like they want to do. They can fall in the trap just like we can in what we think we know. Instead, we have to allow God to reveal to us what we don't know and what we need to know. I've been learning this as I've been uh, teaching on Revelation on Wednesdays. I came to Revelation with a preconceived notion that I had a pretty good idea about how things were going to play out. But I've been studying and preparing to teach it. I began to realize that a lot of the things that I had and sometimes even were convicted about what I had when it comes to the end of times wasn't aligning to what God actually said in His Word. It wasn't aligning to His will. And so I had to come to a place like we all have to come to a place when we come to the Word of God and into the presence of God, when we come to church, we have to come with the heart and the attitude that I am going to be willing for God to teach me, to correct me, to train me, to possibly rebuke me. Because if we're not going to listen to what God is going to say, just like the crowds weren't really listening to what Jesus is going to say, then we're going to come up with our own belief of what we think God said, and it won't align with this Word. This crowd had built their own belief about Jesus, and they come to a place now they're becoming antagonistic and actually in opposition to who he is. This is why it's so critical as God's people, we've got to be studying the Word of God. We've got to be in the Word of God individually, and we've got to be in the Word of God corporately or with other people. And we've got to be willing to learn, not to come with our preconceived notions that, oh, I've already heard that story before. I've already heard that passage before. I already know what that means, but to allow God to transform our lives and move in our hearts because the Word of God is meant to be living 
and active. And we can come to a place where we have a false belief about what God says, and it can lead us to agreeing with someone who's teaching a false doctrine or a false theology. You know what the Bible refers to them as? False prophets and teachers. And you know where they come from? Satan himself. And so we have to be very diligent that when God begins speaking truth into our life, we're going to listen. So Jesus responds to the crowd here in verse 43. And the implication of what Jesus says, do not grumble amongst themselves, is this crowd was grumbling about Jesus, but they didn't have the nerve to grumble to his face. They didn't have the nerve to say it to him. They were just like the Israelites in the Old Testament that God provided the manna for. They didn't grumble to God himself. They grumbled to Moses. They drove him nuts. These people lacked a backbone. Jesus is basically telling the crowds what, to knock it off there in verse 47. I'm sorry, verse 43. And he gives the same spiritual truth that he's already told them in verses 37 through 40 here. The thought and trust of God drawing people to himself is another way people can get up in a false belief. Jesus says, No one, verse 44, can come to me unless the Father has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And what people do with this verse, they say, right there, that's predestination. Right there, God is saying that he has pre-selected some people to be saved, and he has not selected other people. But that's not what predestination is built upon, the foundation. Here's predestination. Predestination's foundation is that God is an all-knowing God, and therefore he knows who will be saved and who won't be saved. Here's the thing. We don't have that knowledge. So we don't get to make the choice about whether or not we're going to share the gospel or not. That's not up to us. God has commissioned, commanded, and empowered us to take the word of God to the world. To share the gospel. The Bible reveals that it is God's will that all people be saved. And this is what Jesus is pointing out in verse 51 when he refers to the world. That whoever and anyone would come to him, that they could be saved. What is being conveyed here in verse 44 is people have to have a desire to come to God. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying people have to have a desire to come to God. And this begins at salvation, and it continues into our relationship with God. If we're a child of God, God has given us his spirit to dwell inside of us. We are now the temple of God, and one purpose of that spirit is it's to give us a desire to want to be in the presence of God, to want to hear from him, to want to talk with him, to commune with him. The reason some people don't have a desire for God is because they believe that they're a good person. They believe they have it all together. Hey, I'm living a good life. Surely I will go to heaven by my standards. And so they have no desire for God. They feel that they've got it all figured out. They feel they don't need what God has to offer through Jesus Christ. Yet God has made it abundantly clear in his word, without Christ, a person is still in their sin. 
They're cut off from God eternally, and they're lost. And so I've shared the gospel with people. I've invited people to come to church. And maybe you've heard some of these responses. Ah, That's not for me. Well, you believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe. I may work for you. This is not going to work for me. Some people tell me that, well, I, I would go to church, but I don't have to go to church to be saved. You know, it's true. You don't have to be here to be saved. Because you can't work and I can't work for our salvation. But the reality is if I'm a child of God, then I should want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ, which I'm going to spend eternity with. So if I have no desire to go be with them on this side of eternity, why would I want to spend eternity with them? And the promise of God is that when we gather in his name as his children, we're two or more. We are in his presence. And he is in ours. Why wouldn't you want to go and experience that as God's people? John 6 and other parts of the gospel, the crowds typically believed Jesus was offering them something, but it wasn't always what they needed. They felt they needed a king. They felt they needed liberation from the old Roman Empire. They felt they needed to be entertained. They felt their physical bodies were more important than their eternal souls. They felt they needed physical healings, not a spiritual one. But again, if someone does not have Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then they have not been forgiven for their sins. They have not been given eternal life. And if you're one of those people, you need to do that today. God is drawing you to himself. He's giving you the desire to be here. But if you hear me say that and you know that's who you are, you're like, well, I don't need to do that right now. Then that reveals your heart at this moment does not have a desire for God. And you really need to cry out to God, God, give me the desire to be with you and to belong to you. Jesus, knowing what the crowds were grumbling about, he turns their attention to the prophet Isaiah in verse 45. He says, it comes from Isaiah 54, 13, which reads, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. So Jesus quotes that part of the verse. The other part of the verse says, And great shall be the peace of your, chi- of your children. So Jesus is obviously paraphrasing the verse, but he's the son of God, so he can't, right? He has full permission to do so. But Jesus has a point for bringing this passage up. See, in this passage, in Isaiah 54, God is speaking through the prophet to his people at the time, which would be in the Old Testament. And the message of chapter 54, which Jesus is pulling from, was a message of peace and of Jerusalem being restored. It was the calling of God's people who had been rebellious to him. He was calling his people back into intimacy with him through a restored relationship that he was going to provide. And so when Jesus quotes from this, this passage of Scripture, he's pointing to himself that God, through Jesus Christ, is going to bring people back into peace, back into restoration, and back into intimacy with the Father. And so in this particular instance, even though Isaiah is talking about a restored Jerusalem of old, Jesus uses passage to talk about the new Jerusalem that is going to come, which is revealed in the book of Revelation. That he has come to restore, reconcile, redeem people so they can be in an intimate relationship with the Father to which they were created for in the first place. 
And when they enter that relationship, the promise for them is that they will be in the new Jerusalem and the new earth when all things come to pass. The point is the bread of life came to restore and bring peace. Jesus came to restore the people of the world back into a relationship with God the Father. He came to reconcile people, which means to bring back into peace and to harmony with God. If you are found in Christ, then here's the promise Jesus gives us. We are living in restoration and peace with the God of the heavens. We are back in harmony. The opposite, though, if someone is not in Christ and Jesus is not their Savior, then God says you're living as an enemy of his. And in opposition. The problem with the crowd and people today is they hear the good news of salvation, but they don't actually listen to it. They may even know why they may even know why they need to be saved and how they can be saved, but they haven't learned it. Jesus says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That Greek, that's a Greek word, heard. The New Testament is written in the language of Greek. It means to listen to the point of understanding and regarding it as truth. That's heard. The word listen or learned in the Greek means to comprehend to the point of practicing and experiencing it. So the crowds were hearing Jesus But they were not regarding what he was saying as truth. They thought they had learned the scriptures, which they bring up the the story of the manna from the book of Exodus. They thought they had learned it, but they had not comprehended it to the point of practicing it and experiencing it. And the point of the manna in the Old Testament, when God provided the manna for the Israelites as they wandered, was that the Israelites were to recognize God as their sole provider. He was Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. And they were to learn these lessons as they walked with him. They were to learn it when they came out of Egypt because who saved them? God did. When they came to the Red Sea and they felt trapped, who parted the waters? God did. It wasn't Moses' stick. He gave them water to drink when they could not find water. He gave them food to eat when they could not find food. He gave them his law so they could live for him. He gave them his presence to be in the midst of their camp. He gave them his guidance on when to move and when not to move. He gave them the promised land. It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't Moses. God told both of them, I am gifting you this land. He was to be their provider the crowds come to Jesus because they knew, hey, he can provide us for food. He can provide healings for us. He can provide miracles, and we can be entertained by that. But they did not regard Jesus Christ as the provider of their salvation and what they truly need. Verse 46, Jesus draws out the truth. The crowds who would have been aware of, there were very few people in the Old Testament who had ever seen God. And those who did see God fell in reverence before him. As if though dead. There were several who had seen God's presence. There's a difference between seeing God face to face and God's presence. The Israelites saw the presence of God consume Mount Sinai, and guess what happened? They feared it. And they asked Moses to go speak on their behalf, but they did not see the form of God, nor did they see the face of God. And so, this first part of Jesus' statement, the crowds, they shouldn't have had an issue with. They would have easily agreed, but then Jesus takes it up a notch there at the end of verse 46. He says, he has seen the Father. 
And the he there, Jesus is speaking of himself. He is pointing out like he, like Moses, has seen the Father face to face. And this is what the crowd wanted. This is why they brought up the whole manna thing in the first place. Because they had this false belief that the Messiah would come in the form of Moses, redeem the people, and restore them to prosperity. And Jesus is saying he was, in fact, the Moses that they were waiting for. He was the Messiah. He would not only reveal the law and the true meaning of the law, but he would completely fulfill the law. And he, unlike Moses, would provide the bread of life. He, again, is going to try to get these crowds to understand why this truth that he came down from heaven as the bread of life. The only way Jesus could have seen the Father or seen God and been in the Father's presence and been sent by the Father from heaven is if he is, in fact, God in the flesh, which is what he was. That's how John begins this gospel in chapter 1, pointing to Jesus' equality with God. And the reason we can come to that conclusion is because holiness is the only thing that can look upon holiness. The bread of life is the God of life. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand and for us to understand. If you turn back to the book of Genesis, you don't have to, but you're going to see from the very get-go what God wanted us first to know about him is that he created all things. He is the one who created life. And if we were to read through the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we will see it was God who sustained life. And we come here into the Gospels, and we see now it's God who's going to provide life. And so we may be living right now in the fact that we're blinking and we're breathing because I don't think anybody's sleeping yet. But, you know, so we're medically alive. Yeah, we would be medically alive because we're breathing, we're blinking our eyes, we're, we're somewhat aware, somewhat awake. But Jesus is revealing we can have all that stuff and be termed medically alive. But if I do not have Christ as my Savior, then I do not actually have life. I'm dead. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, this means if you're here and you do not have Christ, you may be living or alive, but you don't actually have life because you're dead in your sin. You're dead in your trespasses. And Jesus points this out in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, speaking of believing in him, has eternal life. This is why he was the bread of life. The beautiful thing about what Jesus is saying to his crowd that is in opposition to him, they're being antagonistic, antagonistic towards him. He is revealing to them, even though they have this mentality about him, he still loves them. And he still wants to offer what he came to do. He's still trying to save them, even in their opposition. Verse 47 is a call to belief, but there's also a warning here if you don't believe. As the crowds thought they had Jesus all figured out, Jesus is revealing their self-proclaimed knowledge was actually foolishness. In our faith in Christ alone, the calling is to believe, have faith, and trust Jesus alone. This means there's nothing we can bring to the table when it comes to our salvation. We all once were dead in our sin and trespasses. And without salvation, there is no self-congratulation. 
or with salvation, there is no self-congratulation because it is completely relying upon the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We came as enemies to God and he reconciled us to himself. It says Martin Luther penned, it is by faith alone in Christ alone and by grace alone. This is why Jesus is telling us the bread of life fulfills our every need. The crowd came looking to Jesus because they were satisfied with the loaves and fish. Now Jesus is trying to draw them to the Father so they can be satisfied with the life that he wants to give them. Turning back to the manna comment that the crowd made earlier, Jesus draws out another truth the crowds could not deny concerning their ancestors. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Nobody in this crowd would have argued with that. They wouldn't have argued that because they knew their ancestors were dead. But he takes it up a notch. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Or he will not die. Jesus is not calling for cannibalism here. Though that seems to be what the crowds take it as in verse 52, which we'll look at next week. What he's calling for here is a full devotion. He's calling for faith. He's calling the crowds to consume him as the Savior, to take him by faith and to trust and rely upon his words and the promises. When we do that, we get consumed by the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. He's calling the crowds and us today to trust him So God can once again fulfill and provide for their very need. And the very need wasn't physical, it was eternal life. Verses 50 and 51, Jesus pointing to the great love of God for all people. The bread of life which would give eternal life for anyone and everyone who believes was given by God just as the manna. It was gifted. When Jesus speaks of his flesh, he's pointing to his overall purpose in coming. Salvation is not based upon our achievements or lack thereof. Jesus was given by God to be given up for the world so all who would put their faith in him would be given eternal life. This is what the not die and will live forever is pointing to. Frederick Bruner writes, the verse itself refers especially to Jesus' future substitutionary gift of himself on the cross. Because the bread of life is the love of God. The Bible says in Romans 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The word reconciled means to be brought back into harmony with God. In 1 John we read, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means in and through Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. And by our faith in that alone, God turns his wrath away from us. And the wrath that was poured out on the cross on Jesus that was meant for us and we deserved it, When we are found in Christ and our faith is in Christ alone, God's wrath is turned from us. That means all of our sins, past, present, and future. 
It's what Jesus is pointing to in John chapter 6. The people have to put their faith in Christ so they can be covered by the blood and the perfect righteousness of Christ. They are to be found in Christ, and when they are found in Christ, we are made a new creation. We belong to God as his children, and we're given the eternal life that Jesus is promising here. And so this is the good news that we are living in. If you're here this morning and you're found in Christ, this is the good news that you're living in. This is why we do church. This is why we are God's people. For us and for others to understand, live in, and experience the love of God and the life that God wants to live in. There is no other purpose for us as a church but to continue to proclaim that message. But maybe you're here today you need to receive eternal life. And God has drawn you to this place, and he's handing out the gift, and this is the gospel we preach. God created you for a relationship with him. And he loves you very much. He loves you so much he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, and he did. But he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. The God who loves you, he wants you to be long to him. And it's your sin that is separating you from that God, the God. And you can't do enough good things. You can go to church your whole life and still die lost. Because it's only found through Jesus Christ alone. That's why he came. And the Bible says if we admit to God that we are a sinner, we believe that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and rose again, we believe that in our heart, then the Bible says we must confess it to be true and confess our need for forgiveness. And the Bible says when we do that, we'll be saved. So if you're here this morning and that's something you need to do, I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to invite you to come down. You can just sit in the front row. I'll sit by you. We'll pray together and we'll celebrate together because God is trying to draw you to himself. But church, let us not preach any other message than the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for being so good to us, even though we don't deserve it. You are faithful even when we are unfaithful. But Lord, thank you that you gave us the bread of life. Father, I pray in this, this moment to you, the God who knows all hearts, and you know the ones who are here this morning who are not your children. And Lord, I know your spirit's crying out to their heart to come and be reconciled, be forgiven, and be given eternal life. So I pray your spirit would grab a hold of their hearts and they would come down the aisle and they would confess you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, today would be their day of salvation. This truly would be a super Sunday. We give you all the praise. We ask your will continue to be done as we sing this final song of invitation.